Hello, this is Kalia in 2020. What you are about to hear is the remastered version of the episode that you clicked on. Why? Well, it turns out that when I started this podcast, I got some incorrect information regarding copyright law and fair use policy. After nearly two years of making content, this oversight was brought to my attention. There was mild panic, lots of guilt, and then a few fervent nights doing research. It seems we might exist in this gray, nebulous area of fair use for critique and commentary, and thus our use of a teeny tiny bit of the music from the soundtracks of the movies that we are critiquing and commenting on might be allowable. But then again, it might not. So a few things. One, I don't want to be a jerk, even accidentally. Two, I think it's important to acknowledge when you mess up. But three, and this is key, I think acknowledging your mess up isn't enough. You have to rectify the situation if possible. And guess what? It's totally possible to go back into these old episodes and clip out the maybe legal, maybe just slightly crappy bit of audio and replace it with a bit of music created just for me by the same composer and performer who made us our theme music, which is what I'm going to do. And since I can't help but tinker just a smidge, I might clean up a teeny tiny bit of audio noise while I'm in there. I mean, I've learned a lot over the last two years, and who knows, you might be stumbling upon this podcast feed years from now. So why should your present day ears be punished? Because way back in time, I hadn't yet found the noise reduction button. Anyway, without further ado, here is the podcast you came here for. Just slightly better. Thanks for listening. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kelia will edify you. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kelia are gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Uh, hello, and welcome to the Pages of Popcorn podcast, the podcast where we, Jennifer and Kalia, two book nerds, talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Today we will be discussing the 1996 novel Bridget Jones's Diary, which became the 2001 film by the same name. But first, we are going to tell you about all the ways you can connect with us on the internet. As you know, we have a webpage where you can find sources, references, and updates about the show, as well as show notes about the episodes, including random quotes and who said them and why and how. And You can also connect to us via our Facebook page or our Twitter, both searchable by typing Pages and Popcorn Podcast into your search bar. And we are on Goodreads. So no matter how you do the social media thing, you can connect to us. And of course, you can email us directly at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. And we want to really encourage you to rate and review us on whatever platform that you use to listen to us on, such as Spotify or Google Play or iTunes, especially iTunes, because your rating and reviewing will help other people find us. As always, we want to thank our Patreons for their ongoing support. And if you have not yet become a Patreon, it's never too late! $1 a month, or 5 if you're feeling especially generous, gets you early access to our podcast and supplemental episodes. And now, on with the show. I'm going to do the recap. Are you ready? Sure. The book is told in diary form. It recounts one year in the life of Bridget Jones, a 30-something singleton living in London in the mid-90s. Bridget is obsessed with her weight and with finding a boyfriend. She is scattered, unambitious, ditzy, and immature. She keeps track of her alcohol, cigarettes, calories, and weight in a very obsessive way. 
Over the course of the year, Bridget flirts with her womanizer boss, Daniel, manages to have a relationship with him for a few months, and then catches him cheating on her and dumps him. This starts off well, actually. She resists his advance until he both wears her down and acts like he genuinely wants a relationship. Of course, he ends up, like I said, cheating on her, and thankfully she does dump him. Bridget's friends remain coupled or uncoupled in much the same way as they started the year. More on her friends later. Bridget leaves her job after she and Daniel break up, and she gets a new one at TV where she is awkward. Her mother leaves her father and pursue a career and a new life. Mother Dearest gets a job in TV and ends up in a relationship with a con man who steals quite a bit of money from a bunch of their friends. There's an eventual flight to Portugal and some dramatic off-camera sort of shenanigans. But all's well that ends well. Mother Dearest gets off scot-free. Her paramour, Julio, is arrested and some of the money might be reclaimed. Also, towards the end of the year, Bridget starts a new relationship with a lawyer named Mark Darcy. Mark Darcy, by the way, is rich and handsome and is who her parents and their friends have been trying to set her up with all year long. Despite very little interactions, apparently it's romantic. They literally hardly encounter each other over the course of the entire year. Literally. He is in January and then not again until October. But there's a bit of a first date flop when she can't hear him ringing her doorbell because she's drying her hair. And after that is explained, he does nothing. There's no second attempt. Then he helps out her career by getting her an interview for her TV job. And yet their relationship is still stuck in non-existent limbo for a while. It isn't until Mark has tracked down the criminal Julio and saved Bridget's mother from jail that they have a heart-to-heart of sorts. And what I mean by that is that she asks him why he bothered to help her mother. And he says, isn't it rather obvious? And then they have sex. And now they're in a loving relationship. Or something. This literally happens the second to last diary entry. The last entry is Bridget saying her mother was right all along, I'm assuming about the shagability of Mark Darcy, and then the book ends. To sum up, Bridget learns nothing, changes not a whit, personifies every cliche, horrible thing about desperate women. She's the sort of stereotype that reads Cosmo, drinks heavily, is unable to handle her adult life, values herself only as it pertains to her sex appeal and an ability to catch and keep a boyfriend. She has no real personality above being a shallow ditz. The end. <clears throat> Movie recap. Bridget Jones is 32, single, engagingly imperfect, and worried about her weight. She works at a publishing company in London, where her main focus is her fantasizing about her boss, Daniel. At her parents' New Year's Eve party, she re-encounters Mark Darcy, who's a childhood acquaintance and the barrister son of her parents' friends. Mark finds Bridget foolish and vulgar, and Bridget thinks Mark is arrogant and rude and is disgusted by his overly Christmas jumper. She overhears him saying rude things about her, and she uses this as a motivation to change her life. She has decided to turn her life around. She begins keeping a diary to chronicle her attempts to stop smoking, lose weight, and find her Mr. Right. She's awkward and sweet and has a gaggle of wonderful friends. They're supportive and funny, and she is well-equipped to tackle her goals. Bridget and Daniel, the notorious womanizer boss, begin to flirt heavily at work, and then there's an important book launch at which... Bridget bumps into Mark and his glamorous but haughty colleague, Natasha. Bridget embarrasses herself at the function by being a poor public speaker, and to make her feel better, Daniel takes her out to dinner. Daniel tells Bridget that he and Mark were formerly friends, but says that Mark slept with Daniel's fiancé, so now they hate each other. Bridget is invited to a family party. It's originally a Tartsen Vickers costume party, which is tied to a mini-break weekend with Daniel, because they are now together and happy. They spend the day before the party at a country inn, where Mark and Natasha are also staying. Daniel and Bridget are all romantic and rompy with the sex and the silliness, and Mark and Natasha are all dour and glum, and Mark seems a bit envious of Bridget and Daniel having actual fun. Of course, he doesn't do anything except look glumly at them. Oh, swoon. The morning of the party, Daniel says he must return to London for work and lose Bridget to endure the party alone. At the party, she's mortified because they changed the theme and didn't tell a few key people. So now she is dressed as a Playboy bunny and everyone else, for the most part, is dressed as sophisticated garden party wear. 
When she returns to London, upset, and drops in on Daniel, she discovers a naked girl in his apartment. She's an American colleague. Bridget dumps him, and finding work unbearable with him in her office, searches for a new career. She lands a new job in television, and when Daniel pleads with her to stay, she declares that she would rather have a job wiping Saddam Hussein's arse. There's a great music throwback here that I will touch on later. Bridget attends a friend's long-standing dinner party where she's the only single person. Once again, she crosses paths with Mark and Natasha. Mark privately confesses to Bridget that, despite her faults, he likes her just as you are. This is supposedly romantic, although I feel quite nauseous while watching it, and I have lots more to say about it later. He says this, again... He does nothing. He returns to the party with the woman he came with, the woman he's dating. Whatever. Okay. Sometime later, the well-known barrister, he allows Bridget an exclusive TV interview for a landmark legal case which boosts her career. Bridget, misguidedly and somewhat disastrously, attempts to cook her own birthday dinner. This is probably the best part of the movie. Mark comes to her rescue. There is blue soup, and there's great times with her friends who love her despite all of the crappy, crappy, crappy food. A drunken Daniel arrives after the happy dinner celebration and temporarily monopolizes Bridget's attention. Mark leaves, but returns to challenge Daniel, and the two have the pretty epically weird band fight, toxic masculinity, violent, whatever, I've got thoughts. Whatever, they have a big old fight in the street, eventually smashing through a window at a Greek restaurant. They eventually call a draw, but then Daniel mutters, wanker, at Mark as he turns away. Only Mark can hear him, and Mark knocks Daniel down. Shocked, Bridget chides Mark, and so he leaves. But only, and then a very self-serving appeal from Daniel, begging Bridget to come back. If I can't make it with you, Jones, I can't make it with anyone. And thankfully, she realizes what a wanker he is, and so she rejects him. Side plot: Bridget's mother has left Bridget's father and has begun an affair with a permatan shopping channel presenter, Julian. When the affair ends unceremoniously and off-camera, she returns to the Jones family home around Christmas and is forgiven rather quickly by the father. As the newly reunited family prepare to go to a party in honor of Mark's parents, she comes out with an unintentional revelation. Mark and Daniel's falling out resulted from Daniel sleeping with Mark's wife, not the other way around. Oh my god. Bridget has misunderstood. She has judged too harshly. Off we must go to the party. At the party, Bridget confesses her feelings to Mark only to learn, not from Mark, but from other people, that he and Natasha have accepted plans to take a jobs in New York and are on the verge of also an engagement. Things Mark could have told her during her emotional sharing of her feelings, but decided not to for some reason. Okay, whatever. According to Mark's father, they're going to be engaged, and off they go, and everyone is cheering them, and Bridget interrupts the toast with an emotionally moving speech. She peter out as she realizes the hopelessness of her position. Her words clearly have an effect on Mark, who stands there and looks at her glumly, but he still leaves to go to New York. So Bridget is sad. Her friends rallied to repair her broken heart with a surprise trip to Paris. But as they're about to leave, Mark appears on Bridget's doorstep. He tells her he isn't going to America. He makes no mention of Natasha. The music swells. We're going to have a romantic kiss, but no. Bridget runs upstairs. She needs to change into her sexy panties. Mark, by himself, in her apartment, decides that it's totally okay to read her diary, and he finds her older, unflattering opinions of him, and then he leaves, without a word. Bridget realizes what he must have read. She might lose him again. She runs outside after him in the snow, in her tiger-skin little undies, and a skimpy out, uh, sweatshirt, and she's unable to find him. Oh my god, she's about to return home, crestfallen, when Mark appears. He's bought her a new diary, so she can make a fresh start. They kiss in the snow-covered street. Bridget remarks that nice boys don't kiss like that, to which Marx retorts, Oh yes, they fucking do. The end. So how do you really feel about this, Julia? 
Okay, I read this book in my 20s, um, or my late teens, and I remember being like, yeah, you go, Bridget. This book is amazing. She's so funny. She's so relatable. She's awkward. I'm awkward. I totally have the same kind of shenanigans sometimes. I wish I had as many cool friends as her. Like, this is great. Totally get it. I, too, refuse to eat and think that just dropping calories will somehow magically get me toned and, and thin and blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. And then I saw the movie, and I was like, yeah, it's hilarious, it's funny, it's so romantic. Okay, fast forward like a good 20 years. I read the book, and I hate her. I hate her so much. And then I watched the movie, and I'm like, yes, they made good choices. They made good changes. The movie is a little bit, it it definitely stands up the test of time a lot better than the book. It's not nearly as dated as the book. And it has some major flaws, But I feel like those flaws are basically just the romantic comedy genre flaws. So I don't know how much you can fault a romantic comedy movie for doing what romantic comedy movies do. It's kind of like saying, I didn't like this horror movie because people died. Like, that's the whole point of a horror movie. So while I don't like the whole plot contrivance of, it was a misunderstanding and blah, 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 and and, uh, whatever. Like, that's... That's romantic comedies, I guess. So I had a very similar experience. When I read this back in 2000, it was in England. Everything was in stone. And I had no idea how much that was. So it feels more significant because one stone is equal to 14 pounds, I believe. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so when she would drop a stone, it was like, okay, that sounds significant. But it's like really one, two pounds. Seriously. Well, okay. So she starts off at a hundred and... When she started off at 129 pounds. And she ended up about at 129 pounds. She gets down to 119 at one point, which, you know, fine. Um, they don't tell us how tall she is. Now, I will just tell you that 130 pounds, 126 pounds, whatever, that is not fat. Like, unless you are four foot two, like, yeah. that's not fat at all. At one point, she does a circumference of her thighs, and that's going to be her new measurement, which is actually a healthier way to do it because. Body mass index is just complete bullshit, and bones and cartilage weigh differently. You and I could be the same height and have the same fat percentage and have completely different weights based on our mass. So, like, whatever, what, fine. But I don't know what 18 inches circumference of your your upper thigh is, because, again, depending on where you measure, that's, like, close to your knee or way up here in the tickle undie zone. Like, I don't know. Like, You're supposed to do it mid-thigh. But... Mid-thigh. <laughs> yeah, because Bridget's really, you know precise in her measurements i no i so that really bothered me like but yes i'm sorry so back in 2000 when i read it i had the same experience of it was one of those popular books i didn't really want to like and then i was chuckling a lot i thought it was funny i thought it was hysterical and i didn't like the movie really yeah and then redoing you know the book and the movie for the podcast i hate the book i can't stand her yeah and the movie, I don't like the introduction. I don't like her accent. Renee Zellweger is an American, and she kind of struggles with the British accent for a while. But, yeah, one of the reasons I like the movie a lot is we don't have her constantly berating other women. Yeah. It's so catty and nasty. Yeah, the book was very catty. And without that, she's so much more likable. Because the whole time she's like, Perpetua, that bitch! And, oh, she's that skinny cow and blah, blah, blah. It's just, ugh. I like your t-shirt, Empowered Women, Empower Women. Yes. Yes. 
Well, yes, and I I love her friend um, Shaza or Sharon in the in the book. She is called by both. She's awesome. Like she's not putting up with any of this stuff. And I was like, I want yeah. I want her book. Right? I'd much rather read Sharon's book about being in her twenties than Bridge. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. No. So I, reading this diary, it's like the diary of the manic pixie dream girl. Well, except that I think that the manic pixie dream girl is supposed to kind of have all the answers and be wish fulfillment for men. This is like. Uh, manic pixie because she is very manic she's always oh yeah. sort of up in the clouds she's always dreaming these weird little things and she's flighty oh. and fun although more in the movie i mean she she has more daydreams in the movie and she's you know but it, but it's cute the way they do it in the movie it's cute and and i'm rooting for her in the movie in the book i just wanted her to shut up and stop whining so much all she did was whine it's not a big book it, it's no slender little book and I found myself flipping through as fast as I could about a quarter of the way through of I just can't stand this book anymore but I have to. Yeah. Well and and like the way that the book does all the women too because for example Bridget's mother so this major subplot um, in the book Mrs. Jones is self-absorbed and frustrated she's incredibly unsympathetic she's just awful and the film is more compassionate about her situation like it, it makes you feel a little bit for her she like she wants to go off and like do a thing but she doesn't seem she's not having an affair as much right it's it's more so is it Julio or Julio Julio I guess it was Julian I thought it was Julian did I read it wrong well, because he's Portuguese, and so Spanish, it would be Julio, but Portuguese is slightly different. I was wondering if they... Oh, they made him Julian. He was definitely Julian in the movie. Okay. Because I remember her saying that, but I she might have just been... He might have been... I thought it was still Julian in the book, too, but she called him Julio sometimes. I don't know. He was very orange. And he... I mean, yeah. And we don't like orange people. <laughs> Well, Oompa Loompas. Oompa Loompas. They're Oompa okay. Loompa in the White Houses. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I... But, you know, and... She seems to actually feel re- regretful in the movie. She comes back and say what you will about what that plot line. I I thought it was it was very frustrating to me that the father was like, "Oh, you've apologized and you're here and you're sad." And she really only comes to him because he's gone off with somebody else, Julian, Julio, whatever. He has left her. He's like flirting with other people, and so she's sad about it. So now, like, oh, the the bubble bursts and whatever. So she gets she comes home and she's sad and remorseful and regretful. And then the dad's like, "Yeah, okay." And then like the next day, it's like nothing happened, and it was like this whole thing. And in the book, she's not apologetic she's so flighty and self-centered and um well, even at the end when you know she sneaks off with him and she comes back and her shirt's rumpled yes I so mean, she like, wasn't regretful at all at all in the book and like she has in the book there was also this whole thing where he was a con man and there was money being stolen and she was just like la la la, la i don't care i somehow this will all work out for me and i won't have to answer for my crimes at all and that is what happened and i'm like what the hell, man? Like, girl. And then to have the book have that character at the very end for Bridget to be like, oh, I guess it's true. Mother knows best. And I'm like, mother knows best? Mother left father for a con man, oh, like, got arrested, stole a bunch of money, then like, la la la, gets away scot-free. So what? What makes her, <laughs> her likable in the movie is that you can see the tragedy of her life where she's stuck, she's middle-aged, she feels like she's lost a lot of her youth and potential and wants to try something new and wants to get out and be adventurous. Right. And she doesn't quite have the affair in the same way. She just smiles on television. 
Yeah, she's definitely flirting with it. And there probably was something, but that definitely, it wasn't as much of it yeah. as a thing. And, um, oh man, and she didn't just look into that. She was doing a, her first little draw after she left her husband was in a department store showing people like this egg contraption where you yeah, put the egg solid. in and then you, you pump it with your hands like you're masturbating and then oh, up comes the egg and then extra spillage happens. Oh my God. I watched that scene like four times because I couldn't <laughs> get through it without laughing so hard. It was great. And yeah, so she just pulls it off really but because well. She just has that knowing Because she's like so it. naive, but also yeah. like very sweet. Like you, that, that leads you to feel for her. Like you yeah. kind of, because she's not acting like she's the be-all and end-all. She's not arrogant, you know? And so that was very... I, it was touching. Anyways, oh, yeah. So in the, the book's treatment of women in general, not great. We had way more about um, Bridget's friend Jude and her boyfriend Vile Richard in the book and this on-again, off-again thing. We, ha- You know, he didn't want to commit at all to her and she was willing to, like, accept that. Then we have Bridget's friend Tom, who's gay and... Also has an on again, off again, Jerome, you know, um, who also doesn't really want to commit. And it was just like, I liked her friend group so much. Her friends are great. They're very sweet. They're all very fleshed out characters. And even in the movie, they did a good job of giving them each their own distinct personality and stuff. And I like, you know, and we'll get to themes later. I like the idea of her, of her group of friends, but man, in the book, I just, I will say there's one thing that the book did that I, the movie didn't do quite as well. In the book, her friends also have crises yeah. and Bridget is there for them and tries to help them. In the movie, Bridget seems to be the only one with a crisis. And I didn't get the vibe that it was because her friends only took care of her and she would not have been there for them. It was just that the movie could only had so much time. So we had to cut out subplots like her friends in crisis and, and stuff. But it was, you know, it, it, it's kind of a disappointing removal. Yeah, because just be- it shows what a friendship is. It's right. not one directional. That's exactly. So. so you become a little bit of a Mary Sue when it's all about you. I have so many notes. <laughs> 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 Let's talk about chiclet and feminism. Oh my god. Yeah. This book was a book for women, about women, teaching you how to be the world's worst woman. Well, okay, so this is particularly in the 90s when feminism was still redefining itself, and I find this to be a somewhat particularly British take on it, where women in their middle age felt invisible. And that has thankfully changed, but there was a lot of that I remember in the 90s. Like, if you were unmarried at 30, you know, guys stopped looking at you. If you were unmarried in your 40s, that was like a thing. And in my practical experience, it was very much the opposite. I knew older women who were dating and having fun, but to look at media in the 90s, if you were past a certain age, you weren't worthwhile as a female. Mm-hmm. I got divorced at 25 in the early 2000s, and I was told by someone that girls are like Christmas cake. They're not good after the 25th. Ouch. So I really should have divorced earlier so that I could, you know, have a shot or just, or just sucked it up. smack that person down. No. <laughs> I was not quite confident enough. But... Yes, there is this very pervasive attitude about, you know, you get to a certain age and then you're just, you're done for and blah, blah, blah. And that's, first of all, it's not true. And second of all, I like, I like Star Trek. And I, okay, follow with me. Star Trek, Next Generation specifically, and even the the original series, they're very idealistic. They're like, this is where we want to be. 
right? Okay, so you can watch your sci-fi for our escape. Oh, look, space wizards use the force. Or you can like watch your, your sci-fi and it's like ideal aspirational. And I prefer the aspirational. So when I'm reading a book about women struggling with things or women going through things, I want the aspirational. I want the woman who either has it kind of figured out or is figuring it out or something, not just one who's wallowing in this cosmo-laden, pathetic, like... This is all the things that we don't want to teach our daughters is this. And so to, 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 to not have her grow and change at all is very frustrating to the me. The biggest heartbreak to me was, I think it's about a third of the way through the book where she finally gets down to 119 and everyone's telling her, you look tired. You don't look good. Mm-hmm. And does she learn from that? Does she stop counting her calories? Does she stop becoming obsessed with this very unhealthy attitude towards her body? No, 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 not at all. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's like, that was could so have been disappointing such a golden opportunity to be like, oh, you know, and like, even she says like, you know, when your friends came to see you and she's like, oh, that was a sweet thing to say, but she doesn't really take it in that like, it's her, the person of who she is. And it doesn't matter what she weighs or, oh my God. Yeah. So many missed opportunities to actually be a positive yeah. look at, at, being a woman, I it's so frustrating. Um, the real life irony I find in this is Renee Zellweger. If I'm getting her name mixed up, uh, Renee, no, Renee Zellweger, got it. Yeah, um, she gained a couple pounds. Twenty five. Yeah, she gained a couple pounds to play this part. And I remember at the time, people were saying, you know, she looks better with the weight. Yeah, she for looks sure. Curvy and sexy and yes, cute. Yes, curves are awesome. But also, they upped the amount. She was 139 pounds. In the movie, as her starting weight, she was in the one third. Like so, she was heavier, and I think partly because they realized, oh no, you know what, a hundred and twenty-six pound-year-old woman complaining about her weight. No, that just no. But Renee Zellweger also looked fine at one hundred and thirty-nine pounds. Looked great at one hundred and thirty-nine pounds. Um, is short. They did cast a shorter actress mm-hmm. to do it, thankfully. But you know, she's rounder and she looks good. I. Yeah, for sure. There are a number of guys who like the curves. Well, there's a number of women who would agree with that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> la la la. So, um, so yeah, I like that real life irony. And she lost the weight in a very healthy way. It took her time to lose the weight, right? And then she gained it all back for the <laughs> the part two, for the part two, and the part three, and the whatever. Yeah, and thankfully nowadays, I mean, it's not perfect, but I I do feel like we are making more strides, and there are curvier people and people who are more healthy weights and we have gotten away from the 90s heroin diet chic like the model the heroin thing like that was a big thing in the 90s where like you had to be practically skeletal or there's um, a great study done on women on a first date and in the 90s if you were a woman who you you were with somebody who you thought was attractive you would not eat as much on your plate that study was redone uh, in the mid-2000s, and it didn't care whether women found the guy attractive or not. They were going to eat their plate of food. Good. Yeah. So we, we have hope. made strides. We definitely have. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Enjoy your food. <laughs> enjoy your food. That is what Even food- if it's blue. Even if it's blue. <laughs> See? And, like, those those moments in the book and the film um, where she did something awkward, some of them came across very endearing, right? Yeah. Like the blue soup. Some of them were, I was kind of like, okay, sure, like, I, fine. But 
I found that the movie did a good job of making her adorably awkward and not... Adorkable? Yeah, she was adorkable in the movie. In the book, she was just uh, enabled in, in to function as an adult in some places, you know? There was a whole, quote-unquote, funny scene where she couldn't figure out how to, like, record something with the VCR, with the video player. Which, okay, fine, I get it. Like, we've all had a thing where we're struggling with technology or something, but... That, that in and itself isn't funny. It's not funny that you don't know how to read an instruction manual. Like, do you know what I mean? So, well, I, that's supposed to be humanizing where everyone who couldn't figure out how to program their VCR could go, oh my god, I feel your pain. No, I get that. Yeah. I, it just didn't come off as It, it didn't well. make her seem any more or less awkward or adorable compared to the rest of the world. Whereas in the movie, where she gets up on the on the microphone and she's like, it the, literally the sign behind her says the world the, the best book of the year or whatever, right? And, and there you have great authors in the room, right? And so yeah. she realizes how awkward that is, but to try to fix it, she just makes it more and more awkward. I was going like, to mention that I actually uh, I don't like humiliation comedy. Humor. Yeah, I I don't like that at all. But this was really cute and I could totally sympathize with her and she could have played it off a little bit better but she doesn't and that's part of the the, the fun charm of it. Well, yeah because there's someone rushed it's like oh except for you <laughs> oh and you and your books are also quite good and you know <laughs> she goes, which is great and you could it's very believable you know and she she worked in publishing but she wasn't a public speaker you speaking know? as somebody who just had to do some public speaking I am as a as dorky, I don't know adorable would apply, but as dorky as she is going, I'm up in front of people and I just suddenly lost my brain. Uh. So words are going to tumble out of my mouth. <laughs> I feel you, Bridget. I feel you. <laughs> I felt her when she climbed off of the um, exercise bike in the movie and, and fell, fell over. <laughs> yes, that has happened to me at the gym in front of other people. Thankfully, Bridget was alone when she fell. Yeah. But people who are who work out, like seriously work out, and aren't there to be on the treadmill in high heels, they understand. When you do a serious workout, your muscles don't want. Well, especially to if you're like, out. I've decided to lose all the weight in one day, and I'm going to kill myself <laughs> and do this until my legs literally cannot hold myself up anymore. Yeah, in my case, I was trying to scratch an itch, so I leaned down awkwardly to try to scratch. Well, but I didn't want to stop it. You know, the treadmill because. I don't know. I was like embarrassed to stop it and then start it up again. I thought people would judge me. So instead I leaned over awkwardly to scratch an itch and my leg went one direction. My other leg went the other and I landed on my ass and then it rolled me back and dumped me unceremoniously <laughs> on the ground. So I feel you, Bridget. <laughs> I feel you movie, Bridget. Yes. I feel you movie, Bridget. So I think and at least she was exercising in the book. She didn't yeah. exercise at all. At all, all she did was those, those, like, binge and then not, you know, eat, not eat, alcohol, cigarettes. Yeah, binge and then starve, binge and starve. Which is just 900 calories a day. That is not healthy. It's super not healthy. Yeah. And I, you know, and like, the, you know, it's interesting because I don't know if her, her calorie counts counted into the alcohol, but alcohol is a fair amount of calories. So if she's not counting those, and it didn't seem like she was. And I, one of the saddest parts for me was when the guy was like, how many calories in an egg and in a this and in a that? And she just knew it off the top of her head. Mm -hmm. And okay, I feel you. Cause I, again, like I did that thing where I was all about the calories and counting and obsessive about it. And there's stuff. also quite a variety in food. They're not all exactly like an egg. Isn't always exactly the same. Calories no, but there as every is, other egg. there is, you know, some general ideas, but like, I, so I could feel that, you know, and I was like, that is sad that this, 
this obsession with the numbers and the numbers on the scale, the numbers on the box and the numbers that define you and letting something like that define you is really, it, it is definitely a troublesome issue in our society, which is again, why I feel like because she didn't learn, nothing happened with that. The book seems to be condoning it. I mean, like, this is cool. It's okay to be this obsessive. It's okay to be this shallow. It's okay to, to think of your worth is tied up in your weight. So the book to me feels like it was Simon Cowell before Simon Cowell came around. Of I'm going to have this character who says the things that we all think, but nobody actually wants to say. Hmm. That's what her diary felt like of, okay, I'm going to be catty because we all have those really catty, nasty thoughts. Do we? But that's it. That's, <laughs> you know, maybe at one point this was a thing and then hopefully you grew out of it if you were that person. You know, hopefully you realized it was toxic and you don't do that anymore. But that was kind of the fun of Simon Cowell is you would just straight up say, no, you're really terrible at singing. I don't find that fun. It, it's refreshing when all you have is a lot of politeness. It's also really awful because you have people who may have gotten some bad advice about their voices and they could do much better, but they're just being trashed on very publicly. So, you know, there, there is a subgenre of people who really like the, the quote unquote awful singers because why not? They're up there. They're, they're giving it a shot. You know, we don't have to judge people who yeah. go up for karaoke. We don't have to be so judgy and negative. So I get the two sides of this of, well, here's the guy who's saying what we all think of, oh, you, you think your voice is that good that you're willing to come on national television and, and do the, the thing and embarrass yourself? It's, it's very much what medieval court jesters were. They were people who had mental disabilities. And so the wealthy would throw food at them and make fun of them. And we have that today. We have our whipping boys. We have our reality TV stars. But I'm thinking of, you know, uh, the Learning Channel or Terrible Life Choices, depending on how you want to think of that channel now. Yeah. And they have people who are train wrecks. Yeah. And yet, they're, they're, they shouldn't be. They should. So, are you talking about like that thing where like it's a bat, like a traffic accident, you can't look away? Yeah. That we have. I think that stems from like, oh God, at least I'm not like that. Oh, yeah, very right? much so. Um, there's the Jerry Springer, there's the wife swap, and right. they want a certain level of crazy that's not too crazy. See, because, I didn't really like, get, it is really damaging to people who go through that. I didn't get any of that stuff from the book or the movie. Like, I felt like in the book, her cattiness and her judginess and her whatever, when it wasn't. It felt like a. It, it was direct. She did not like herself. Bridget has no self esteem, right, at yeah. all, and so she lashes out by being rude to other people and about other people. And and I def I want to pin in that because th that's part of a thing. I did get a couple messages, mm -hmm. morals messages, meanings, blah blah blah. Um, and I want to pin into to that later. So. It also is very Cartman humor from South Park. Of oh, she had he had um, a very cruel raced wife. As really. Yeah. Because it's on PC, and so, oh my god, she actually said the thing. Yes, Bridget's it's mother, right? It's her mother who says it in both the book and the movie. They decided to keep that in the film, that Bridget's mother has a racist attitude. That's... 
What? I guess it makes it real because some people are racist, but like, do we, do we need that? Like, did that add anything to the character of Pamela Jones? Did, did, in the book, it made sense because she was a horrible person. And like, you're like, she's a horrible person. She's also racist. She also, you know, is cheating on her husband. She's also doing all these things. In the movie, we're going to take a character who makes bad choices. We're trying to make a little sympathetic, but we're going to keep the racist line in there to make her, I think what? you're supposed to be a little infuriated with her of, oh my god, your your racist uncle or your racist grandpa and go, Oh, don't don't say that out loud. So Or if you say it out loud, have somebody call you on that because that's what you're not Okay, and speaking of like not the racist uncle, but the freaking gross yeah, handsy uncle. Holy crap! Why? Yeah, let me squeeze your bunny tail. And even before that, when she was just in regular clothes, he was squeezing her ass. Yeah. And he's the one who was supposed to tell her to not wear the tarts and, you know, for the tarts and vicars party, to not actually dress tarty. And he didn't. Obviously, on a purpose, didn't. Oh, ha ha. Oh, Jeffrey. Such a cat. La la la. You guys, this is fucking the patriarchy and rape culture right here. And when people like Bridget, who are like, I'm super uncomfortable with this, but I don't have the power to say anything about it. Like, and it just continues because unless you get smacked down, unless somebody says, yo, Pamela, the Japanese are not a cruel race. What the fuck? Like, you're not going to grow and change. Again, so many missed opportunities. That's, that's the thing with Reese's grandpa is you're not going to change Reese's grandpa. No, but what you are going to do is you're going to be a good fucking model of behavior to the grandkids who are listening to that shit, who are not hearing him getting called on it. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. That's the generation that matters. So, yes, we cannot fix Reese's grandpa, but we can be better role models to the kids and they can know what is and is not acceptable. And it is not the same to take them outside afterwards and be like, so you heard what grandpa said and it's not good. No, because then what they learn is that racism is okay and we don't challenge it but in our own quiet way we say oh yes that was bad no you challenge that stuff you stand up and you say this is wrong i don't think there are any children in the room doesn't matter (laughs) (laughs) so can we talk about the music Sure. In the movie, because I really, really liked the music in the Shaka movie. Khan. Shaka Khan was great. It had, okay. Aretha Franklin. Oh, no, no, no. Okay, here's the thing. I'm taking notes, right? During, okay. during my viewing of this, of this movie. And la 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 da 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 da. Music is so well done. Da 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 da. Wait, the Aretha song? Wait, during Daniel's intro? I think she's missed the point of the song. Like, this is taking things out of context. This is bad, y'all. Okay, scroll down, scroll down, because Literally, Aretha Franklin song is how we're getting introduced to the womanizer Daniel. And then, and then, ah, I see. She's quitting. Daniel's begging her to take him back. And she says, no. She's wearing pants as she leaves. And Aretha Franklin barrels out with R-E-S-P-S-V-T. So there you go. Like, it was a callback music. Yep. So it was badly placed early on, I think, to show us that Bridget didn't really understand a lot of stuff. And she's like, ooh, because all she's listening to is the first part of the song. What you want? You know, I got it. I cannot be Aretha. You understand. But whatever. He's like swarming through the office. He's all sexy. He's what they want. You know he's got it. Blah, blah, blah. And then later on, she's like, no, I'm going to take that song. That's my song. I deserve respect. And what you want? You know, I got it. As I walk out in pants. In pants. I also like Perpetua in that scene, too. Yes. In both the book and the movie of... She finally yeah. stands up for her and and maybe wasn't the horrible person that Bridget had thought she was all along. In the book, too, Perpetua takes her out of town, like, to, to Dublin or whatever, like, gives her access to a... Wasn't it Edinburgh? Edinburgh. You're right. Sorry. 
Ireland? Um, <laughs> Ireland, Scotland. Somewhere else, not London. And I need to travel more. She, but Perpetua takes her, you know what I mean? Like she yeah. gives her options. And so she's not as awful as Bridget thinks, but Bridget has decided that she is awful. So therefore everything that Perpetua does, Bridget sees as awful, which is a similar theme to Bridget sees Mark Darcy in his reindeer jumper and goes, ugh, guy in a rain rainbow <laughs> guy in a reindeer <laughs> jumper blah and um by the way bridget you're wearing something pretty awful yourself and then later on it turns out that it was because of his mother had given it to him which is exactly what bridget was doing was wearing something her mother had given it to her so huh maybe we shouldn't judge by outward appearances huh? um from a visual standpoint when she goes to the party and she's dressed up as the bunny in the book they give her like this old wedding bridesmaid dress to wear that's very frumpy. Um, I don't mind that they didn't do that in the movie because Renee Zellweger is totally rocking that bunny outfit in a really major way. Yeah, yeah. I did like though that I don't okay. This this bothers me in movies sometimes where you're like, the logistics don't add up. So they're in their hotel room, okay? And Daniel says, I have to leave. So I'm going to take my luggage and go back to London and I'm going to drop you off at this party and then I'm going to send a car to pick you up to take you back to London. Okay. So, but then she, so, so that's why she's still in the bunny costume because she doesn't have her luggage. So Daniel took her luggage with him. Is that, is that what happened to her luggage? Because if that's what happened to her luggage, that makes sense why she's in the bunny costume. But then would not her luggage be at Daniel's house and should she have not picked it up on her way out of the door? Okay. Or he left her luggage with her, like, in their hotel room so that she could go back to the hotel room and change, which she doesn't, I don't, I, whatever. I got, I get lost and sometimes like a little, it's like when somebody makes a phone call movie. Hey, do you want to go out later? Yeah. Does eight o'clock sound good? Sure. And they hang up and you're like, where are you meeting? Where are you meeting at eight o'clock? Like, I don't understand. Are you being picked up? Are you, are you, if people, you notice know. about phone, there's like a weird phone thing with films where they almost never say goodbye. And they never they get all up. the details. Yeah. Oh, if I didn't say goodbye on someone on the phone, I'd get a phone call back. Are you okay? You didn't say goodbye. <laughs> okay. Yes, Aretha. Uh, the, so that the music was good. I liked the music in the movie. I liked most of the changes that they made in the movie. I will say. I liked that they changed the subplot of her mother. I think it kind of fine-tuned a little bit. I really love the fight that Hugh Grant and Colin Firth get into. It, it's actually a pretty realistic fight. It is a very realistic fight. People are super awkward in fights. Oh, okay. Yes. And it's also poking so much fun at British manners. But before the fight, like, just the change of having Mark Darcy be in the movie, yes, actually in the movie, and have them keep kind of running into each other multiple times, like, we laying in a foundation that he actually, I don't know, knows who the fuck she is, and hasn't, like, just gone ten months without seeing her and suddenly love... I mean, okay, fine. So, yes. And I liked... The, the little subplot of, like, who slept with whose wife, Daniel and Mark, and they had used to be friends, that was a good addition. Totally fine. It adds to both of their characters. It, it gives a level that wasn't there in the book. So, yeah, no, I that change was great. And then to be able to have more Daniel, because he was definitely more bigger part, and to have more Colin Firth, and then to have the culmination of this fight. Now, I'll say their fight was funny, and believable. Fantastic. It was fantastic. I love that scene. That was my favorite scene in the whole film. Really? Because when they have to stop and sing, sing happy, happy birthday, birthday, when, you know, he gets knocked into the table, he's like, oh, excuse me, pardon me, and let me, <laughs> let me clean your, your lapel there. I'm sorry. <laughs> it was very funny. 
Yeah, and just poking fun at British mannerisms is... There's a a part of me that says, oh, now the men are going to be fighting. Fighting over Bridget. And they're horrified. Oh, no! They're not fighting over Bridget. He's... Well, they're fighting over their... The honor of a past transgression with a woman. Uh, I mean, okay, don't get me wrong. If your partner cheats on you with somebody, you can hate that person. I get it. But, like... It's really your partner's Your partner is the one who made a commitment to you. I mean, yes, they were best friends. They put that in there, so it wasn't, like, a stranger. So, like, there's a betrayal of that relationship. Uh, Fine. But what it is is, like... So they're fighting, and they, I mean, they're they are not fighting over Bridget, but they are kind of fighting over Bridget, because otherwise, like, they both wouldn't be in the same room, and that's definitely the thing, like, Mark's moving in on Bridget, and they're having a great time, and then Daniel shows up, and he steals her away to another room, and then Mark's all jealous, and blah, blah, blah. So then we have this thing about, oh, isn't it sexy when men are jealous? Oh, isn't it sexy when men fight over me? Oh, isn't violence sexy? Here they are, out in the street, beating the crap out of each other. Oh, oh, stop, stop, I'll flutter my hands at you. Oh, God, oh, no, no, don't. Oh, oh, I will oh, completely admit, oh my gosh, it's so sexy the way you're torn up now. And I will oh. completely admit that my faith is problematic, but I don't care. It's fun. <laughs> the only thing that, that breaks me on that one is when they fall out of the window, because it would be cut up to shreds. Oh, yeah. And that's bloodless violence, right? Okay, so we're making fun well, of... And then everybody, we're making fun of action films at that point. Right. And then everybody in the restaurant doesn't make any more noise for the whole rest of the scene. The cops never come. Like, the proprietor doesn't come out. Darcy says, oh, I'll pay for it, but then wanders away. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> sure. Um, and he's, like, a famous person in the world of the movie, you know? So, like, you would think that that would make the papers or something. Like, there would be some kind of negative repercussions to a street brawl. And... They don't just have a fight, but, like, her friend Tom runs into a building and yells, fight! Fight! And then everybody runs out and they're clapping. So it's, like, spectator now. This men... So, okay. But then we... Thankfully, the scene ends where she gets mad at Mark for... I being guess violent. being violent and, and having the sucker punch thing. Well, also she at that point thought that Darcy was the one who. Yeah, exactly. So she, so, so, okay. So she's mad at him. So he want, he goes away and then she's like, Oh, Daniel. And then Daniel's like, Oh, you know, and then he just totally messes it up. He's like, oh, if I can't make it with you, I can't make it with anyone. And that just, that's what every girl wants to hear, right? I've hit the bottom of the barrel and you're that final layer. So please don't let me dig down because I don't want to scrape my shovel on like the actual bottom of the barrel, that would make me feel really bad about myself. Don't you want to have sex with me now? No! (laughs) Seriously! So, thankfully, she grows a little bit of a backbone and is like, yeah, no. In the movie, she was a lot more self-empowered in in that respect. In the book, her moment, her only moment of self-empowerment with Daniel until, you know, she quits. But again, like, that's not really her empowerment. He cheated on her, whatever. But her only real moment of self-empowerment with Daniel is at the beginning of their relationship, where... He's trying to get in her pants, and she's like, hey, no, I don't want any of this fuckwittage. And then she she leaves until he can kind of basically wears her down and acts like he wants an actual relationship. Then she acts, yes, but she plays a lot harder to get in the book. So this doesn't age well in the Me no. Too era of your boss flirting with you like that. Oh, my God. And it wasn't even, like, subtle. Like, first it, first it was kind of subtle. Oh, is your skirt out sick because it's so short? Blah, yeah. blah, blah. And then, so sh- she responds with, this is inappropriate. Don't talk to me like this. Blah, blah, blah. 
And he somehow knows that she's joking because you know when women say no, they really mean yes. And then he goes, "Oh, totally, I but won't." She was joking with him. No, no, I know. Yeah. And so because of course, when women say no, they always mean yes. No, like finish the sentence. Okay. So, so, so she responds and is like, "Don't, don't do this. This isn't appropriate." And he just magically knows that she's joking because when women say no, they secretly mean yes. So he responds, "Oh yes, of course. I will. I will stop. I'm sorry." By the way, your tits look great in that shirt. So, okay, she was joking. She did want the attention. Talk about mixed signals here, right? And then it's like, oh, he, he, now he said tits. Now we've like taken it on to a whole other level. Okay. Because I said no and pretended like I didn't want it in a flirty way. And he knew that I was only pretending to not want it. But her syntax, she's pretty obviously flirting back. To be fair, you don't get sin- uh, you don't get connotation. No, she's like, oh, my my skirt is very appalled at the you know she's at management's with- blah blah blah. Yeah. yeah, no, I get it, but yeah. I'm just saying, like it, like you said, in the Me Too era, in nowadays world, like this does you not should age well. never have said that to begin with. Not at all. But her response is flirtatious. She's very deliberately going along with, oh, well, my skirt is you know this and this and this. Yeah. Whereas what she should have done and she really didn't want it is this is inappropriate please don't respond period right but of course that's not what we do yeah. because it's a romantic comedy and we're allowed to flirt with our bosses and sleep with our bosses and i do like that you see the consequences of a love affair gone bad in the workplace when it's between a boss and a subordinate and that could have been so much worse oh it could have been so much worse i mean and in reality it is lightly. she gets to go off and have another job so good and but let's be honest here a lot it, of people are stuck in that situation it didn't end because she realized it was wrong or because like they grew apart no it ended because he cheated on her and she thankfully was like yeah i'm i no 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 to that she doesn't want to be with someone who's cheating on her in the book he then gets engaged yeah suki it was a totally suki. different name yeah um and of course in both the book and the movie when she finds this naked girl in, in his apartment, the girl goes, like, oh. I thought you said she was thin. Which, of course, plays right into Bridget's thing. And it's right, like, that's how women value each other. Oh, I'm thinner than you, so I deserve the man and you don't. It was a pretty devastating line. It was. It was there to be devastating. I didn't it's think- almost like Suki had been reading her diary and knew exactly where to hit her. Oh, I'm sorry. All women have that hang up. So that's a totally safe thing to, to say to somebody when you're trying to be cruel. Make fun of their weight. Yep. I just universal. Think the actress hit that line as hard as it could have been. I didn't. No, in the movie, it, it definitely was it, not quite as hurtful. Flat. Yeah. yeah. But in the book, it's just, well, in oh, the, ouch. In the movie, Natasha was yeah. very cruel to her more so than in the book. Because in the book, she hardly sees Natasha at all. And Mark's girlfriend like I, business partner slash girlfriend slash freaking fiance i'm engaged i'm moving to america bridget is telling her telling me how she feels about me i'm going to look awkward and then go and do it like be okay with going in another room and having this whole big reveal ha- like he could have said something mark darcy is our romantic lead and i don't like him do you like mr darcy from pride and prejudice i um don't like pride and prejudice <gasps> Oh my god, how could you? And you have an English degree. Yeah, I don't think I've ever actually read the whole thing more than the one time when I read it at 13 and didn't like it, and I maybe should try it again, but oh my god, I hate the language. I hate Jane Austen. I hate everything I've ever read by Jane Austen, and I you can hate me, and that's okay. What's the last book you've read by Jane Austen? Northanger Abbey. 
How long ago? Too long ago. <laughs> Not long enough. I will say, my I read Emma. I read since I read a bunch. They all are the fucking same story with too many people and the language and it's archaic and I don't like it and. You're making that sound a lot today. I am. All right, but there, there's a lot of Pride and Prejudice going on, and I just want to make a note of a lot of the fun little touches. In the book, she talks about Hugh Grant, because that whole scandal with him having you know sexual relations comes out. In the movie, he is you know, the, the asshole character. She talks about Colin Firth, because then, he was Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice, and then he's her Mr. Darcy. So <laughs> it's kind of like... Oh my god, it's the same name. To go back. Yeah. So Darcy, our Mark Darcy in the book and in the film is just this glum background dude who has no emotion, who doesn't do shit. And then like, oh, don't, don't, isn't it obvious that I like you? No. (laughs) And, um, let me list all the things I don't like about you and then follow it up with the sentence, I like you just the way you are. No! That's not how this works! That's the joy of Pride and Prejudice, is Darcy also has a character arc. He starts off as an insufferable ass. Elizabeth calls him on his bullshit, and he does change. Right. So that didn't happen in either of these. No, and that's unfortunate. So they keep some of the plot points. They They did not do this in the book. It's a known self-evident that if you blah, then if you blah. Like, yes, there are little throws. They do this a little bit better in the movie. I love that Darcy's actually in the film, where he's almost never in the book. Right. And in the film, he does start off, like, they're at the turkey curry buffet, which, by the way, delicious sounding. And he's like, hey... I don't want to deal with her because she's... Da, da, da. And he, like, totally says mean, hurtful things about her. So that definitely sets them on their on their different courses, right? And it, it's because I think she realizes that what he was saying wasn't just mean, it was true. And that's why she decides to start her, her change of her life. In the book, she's already on this, I'm obsessed with my looks and finding a boyfriend before she even meets him. And he doesn't say anything mean to her. She decides, I don't want to have anything to do with him because he looks like a ponce because he's wearing his reindeer jumper and whatever. So yes, he's more in the bo- in the movie and he shows up. But every time he shows up, he just looks at her. He doesn't do anything. Like, I'm trying to figure out maybe you can help me, Jennifer. At what point, in either the book or the movie, at what point did Darcy decide that he actually liked her? And And Please show evidence from the book or movie where where it's clear that he that he has an emotion of like for Bridget. Okay, a like for Bridget. Um, how about when he shows up to help her cook? That's right. actually pretty cute. That's very cute. That is also at the end. And he wouldn't have shown up to help her cook or shown up for her birthday if he didn't already like her, right? You don't just show up. So so somehow before between turkey curry buffet and saying all these horrible, hurtful things and showing up at her flat, you know, to to be there, he develops feelings. Uh, and in the movie, we get a little bit, because he looks jealous when they're in the boats. He's like, oh, she's fun. Like, he sees her awkwardness at the at the book launch and he, she says that she has a very funny line at the, the, the dinner party where all these married couples, the smug married couple, she calls them. And then she's like, well, how many marriages end in divorce? Is it one in three or one in four? And Darcy like takes her side. He's like one in three. And you're like, haha. But, but then that's the same night where he tells her that he likes her. Although he calls her ridiculous. Right. All these things. 
things he doesn't like about her, but he likes her just the way she is. But this is one of the things I want to say, is in the book, it's supposed to have these, all these Pride and Prejudice callbacks because the BBC series came out at the time that she was writing this, and so... Right. Like, the mother is Lydia and Mrs. Bennett rolled into one, which is why she has that weird affair, and she's kind of teenagery in a really weird way. Okay. But her meetings with Darcy in Pride and Prejudice... And the meetings that Bridget has with Darcy in the movie mirror each other a lot better. Where you have Darcy having a character arc of, oh, I was being kind of a dick and maybe I'm wrong. And they do have those meetings where, oh, maybe I kind of got this person a little mistaken. You know, when he sees her at the dinner table, it's not a complete 180. But Darcy doesn't do that. He proposes, in Pride and Prejudice, Darcy proposes to Elizabeth at a certain point, And Elizabeth shuts him down, saying... Everything you said was just vile. You denigrate my family. You're saying that you would marry me in spite of them. You're a jerk. And no. And he told, and she totally rejects him. So there is that mirroring that's done really well in the movie, where they do have those little chance encounters, and they do get to know each other a little bit better. I just still did not see him actually falling for her, except that he tells us that he did. And, it, and maybe it's all off screen. Book or movie? In the in well both really in the, the, in the book it was terrible so awful the, yeah yeah I mean yes uh, there's, there, and he there's he just disappears he calls her ridiculous at one point and then at the end well obviously I love you yes and and her response she doesn't even have a line of dialogue he said but she goes why did you do all this for my mom second to last page of the book and he says isn't it obvious. Oh, ding dong. We went upstairs and he had a suite and like now I've replaced food with sex and la 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 the end. Pain. Pain. Painful. <laughs> okay, in the movie definitely did a better job because they did have all these chance encounters. They saw and you could see on his face he was like kind of engaged with her. He was a little like entertained. You know, he felt for her. He definitely felt for her at the book launch. Like he was about to go over and t- say something nice to her when Daniel intervened. You know, so I can see it. But still but still, his big romantic moments, there's two of them in the movie. One is when he says all the things he doesn't like about her, but I like you anyways, and then literally turns around and goes back inside the house with the girl that he's dating. So if he's dating somebody and he likes Bridget, stop dating that person. And also, like, that's super weird and awkward because then he doesn't do anything about it. He doesn't follow up. But instead, he he gives her a, an interview and then he gets engaged. Okay, sure. And then... His second romantic thing, he decides he doesn't want to be engaged in New York with Natasha. So he comes back. He shows up. He says, I forgot something. I forgot to kiss you goodbye, which isn't like a kiss hello. It's a kiss goodbye. Okay, sure. So who are we really serving? Although I guess that's code for I just want to kiss you. Fine. So then they're going to kiss. She never asks about Natasha. He doesn't say, oh, yes. And I've broken up with my fiance. Like, I don't know. If I was Bridget, especially after what happened with Daniel, I would want... She stops and says, like, you're not going to America. No, no. Oh, so you are staying here. She's very clear on that. Why not a follow-up line? Have you broken off your engagement with Natasha? I feel like that's something you should know before you start snogging somebody in the snow. Agreed. Okay. And again, (laughs) so now he's just there and he's like, I'm here. And... And then I read your diary without permission. And then I leave the apartment without saying something like, be back in a gif, love, or something else cutely British. No, no, we're just going to walk away and leave you wondering so that we have this big scene in the snow. It's just so stupid. It's so stupid. It's rom-com. I I will say I, I like 
that at the time it was kind of breaking the trope of, you know, you have to win her back. You know, it's her trying to go after him. And then plus he's not that offended. And it's like, oh, it's not the deal that you thought it was. Other than that, it's kind of, it's a silly. Right, but he lets her dangle for a while. He does. He lets her dangle. Oh, Darcy. Oh, blah, 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 blah. Ah. Well, I thought you would need a new one. Like, he could have just. Well, there's a lot of ridiculousness. Like, when he goes Aww. to pick her up for a date, and he's banging on her door, but she can't hear him because of the oh, hair dryer, the and they're both yes. pissed off at each other. Which mirrored in the book, too, because she had a friend who invited everybody to a party, and then she didn't get the invitation, so she thought her friend didn't like her, and was having this whole anxiety thing, and it turns out that her friend was mad because she didn't RSVP, so, you know. Yeah, when you get down to it, Bridges Jones' diary doesn't have much of a plot. You have a whole no. chapter that's, I can't program a VCR. Yeah. Well, great. Are you any different after that? Could you cut that whole chapter out and still have the book that's intact? And if that's possible, you did not write a good chapter. Right. Well, I don't think the book was written particularly well anyways. Like, the diary shtick wore really thin for me, especially when she would write about things in excruciating detail. But well, also, also, like, she, she's, she's got her foot in mashed potato. Let me stop while I'm in a panic wash. mode. Yes, and write it down. <laughs> no. And then, oh, drank so much fall. I just fell on my face. And like, oh, falling now. Or like, all these. Like, no. Like, it's like, is this your, do you have a magical thing where you like, is this a vlog? Is this Bridget Jones's vlog? I think this would have worked a lot better with modern technology, where she is having these little text oh, messages. Don't that say that ridiculous. too loud. Hollywood would kill you and we will have a reboot. <laughs> Although they're making so many sequels, maybe we don't have enough distance. Give it 10 years, and we'll have a reboot of Bridget Jones' Diary, where it's Bridget Jones' blog. Yes. But if they do reboot it, I hope they update a lot of other stuff as well. Yeah. You know, if if you want to consider this sort of a very loose reboot of Pride and Bridges, Elizabeth isn't chased anymore. She can have sex and affairs, and it's not a big deal. So there, there can be benefits to doing stuff like that. What else you got? Uh, she's a better flirt in the movie. <laughs> the party prep was awesome in both places. The prep for the date was very rela- um, relatable because I remember, okay, I have to you know, six hours. I got to like buff this and do this and clean this and whatever, and then hide the trash in the oven. <laughs> You know, things that you do to your apartment to get ready. I get it, right? And, you know, it's a couple of days in advance. You're like, okay, I want to wear those undies. So I have to make sure that they go through the wash. I had, like... Okay, never mind. I was going to share. But I don't know how appropriate Okay, I do like Hugh Grant's reaction to, you know, her large underwear of... No, these are awesome. Uh, yes, I, I have to look at these again. It's very cute. See, he, he was a cad... He was a womanizer cat. But he was charming. But he was very charming. He definitely. And you know, he seemed like he was a lot of fun, too. Like the undie thing. He did. The boats. He was nice to her, took her out to dinner after her thing. You know, that was very sweet. The boats, that was hilarious, right? Like, and even after now she's with Darcy. Can you see Darcy having fun in boats like that with her? No, man. Daniel was fun. Daniel so that's also a callback to the BBC version where instead of Colin Firth getting wet, it's now Hugh Grant getting wet. Oh, with okay. a black t-shirt. Yes. But, like, and also, like, you know, in, and they're having all the sex, and, like, he's good. So, yes, if he wasn't a cheater, you know, who was with this other person, fine. Like, yes. I like, he was cute. So, that, that, that made it sadder, because yeah. he wasn't, like, an evil Because of the emotional Yes. <laughs> he wasn't evil, evil. He was immature. There were a and, few moments of actual insight, and, again, it, it was 
missed opportunities. There's this one moment where they're both going out and she yells at him going, you're an emotional fuck what you do this, this, and this. And he turns to her and says, you've been playing these games too. Mm-hmm. You've been this and this and this. You're, you're a little miss ice queen. And they stop and they look at each other. It's one of those moments, you know, you're both playing games and maybe that's all messed up too. Mm-hmm. But again, it just gets dropped and goes nowhere. It does. They left out her brother in the film. That was fine. He was hardly, I mean, he was there in the book. I'm not sure why he was there. There's so many things in the book that I'm like, why was this there? Like you said, the video recorder, the stuff with her brother. There was other stuff too that I was just like, are we padding? This feels like padding. Yeah. You know? And it's not that long to begin with. It really isn't. So good stuff is her being a good friend and not being the center of the universe. Other stuff is you didn't have much to write. Okay. So I had a couple themes. One theme um, I thought was interesting was, so her mother goes on to television, right? That's, a, you know, and it's a shopping network. And I thought it was interesting that it's very materialistic, right? It's all about buying stuff and consumerism and trying to find happiness there in that very consumer world. And then that's not actually where she found her happiness. She eventually realized that was all shallow and bad and surface and wants to be home with her husband doing family things like going to family events and spending time together. And I thought that's nice. I like that. You know, I don't think it was a mistake. I don't think it was an accident that it was the home shopping network. They put her on basically in the movie, in the book, she was on a suddenly single thing. And it was all very much about single life and sex and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And her mom trapping these, you know, talking to these women. Have you ever had suicidal thoughts? Again, playing to this thing about how if you don't have a man, then obviously you have no point in living. So just go kill yourself. So I like that update. It was, you know, quick because it wasn't like the film was so many years after the movie. But I did like that. I thought that was a good point. And, and Bridget kind of has it too, where it's not really about the things. It's not really about the fancy food. It's about the relationships that you have with the people and who's going to treat you nice and who's going to care for you and who's going to be willing to roll up his sleeves and make an omelet, you know, and stuff like that. So I I liked that little theme. So I I get her dislike of smug married couples. Yes. But at the same time, she's all about wanting to be in a romance. And when she thinks she's pregnant, she totally has a fantasy about being the smug married couple. (sighs) Yeah. So we didn't even talk about that. But there is this tiny little side plot in the book where she thinks she might be pregnant. And she's for the stupidest reason ever because she thought she was pregnant during the time period where the morning after pill would have made sure she wasn't pregnant it was obsessive for no reason no reason she had no reason to think she had not skipped a period she wasn't even late i think she's like two days late she no no where is it (laughs) because like she's not late at all no but that was like oh isn't she charming and awkward and she has all these high fantasies so she had this fantasy about being pregnant and oh my god daniel well well okay you know have the, the little charming baby and he'll be a good father and she goes off into this weird fantasy that has no reality but then when she actually thinks that she might be pregnant she panics the date is that's it that's a long entry okay how many days in, in April? Is April one of those 30s or 30? 30. 30. Okay. The 27th of April is when he shows up at her apartment drunk and then they have this whole little fight and they decide to get together. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the 27th of April. May 1st. Four days. Four days. I think I might be pregnant, she says, on May 1st. They started having sex on the night of the 27th of April. Yeah, I agree with you. 
I mean, she could have been. Yes. I mean, obviously, once you're, you're either pregnant or not pregnant, it's not like it takes two weeks to become pregnant. Seriously. No, there's was, no reason for her to get obsessed about that. She was that. having fun with the fantasy. Oh, well, and then she and then reads when she thinks the, that she's actually pregnant. Oh, she, she gets, buys a test, which wouldn't work, by the way. She could have totally been pregnant. That test would not have told her that she was because she would not have uh, four days. You don't have enough HCG in your urine to have an accurate, oh, Oh my god. Oh my god. I hated this plot point so much, and I'm so glad, A, that she wasn't pregnant, and B, that it was just completely skipped in the movie. Do, 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 do. I think this happened with the movie Kate and Leopold, where the quirky girl just got to me, and after that point, I just couldn't stand. Oh, all you have to do is be quirky, and that's it. That's the only personality trait that you need to have that makes you attractive. I want to get all my sexual partners, my corpiness. So well, corpy. obviously, yes. Okay, so the other the other themes besides the materialism stuff I had is that don't judge others by their clothes. A lesson that she could have and should have learned, um, because she does that. She judges Mark and then realizes that she was wrong, but she doesn't really. But she's uh, constantly in weird outfits too. Yes. She shouldn't be judging other people by what they're wearing when she herself is dressing slutty and, and wearing bunnies. And okay. and then the, the idea of their chosen family, because her friends were definitely there and it was reciprocated. She was there for her friends. They were there for her. And she talks at one point in the book about how this is the family unit now of the single people is that they have their own community and their own families and their own things because, otherwise, you know, they need that. And that was nice, you know, and that's, I mean, there's so many sick... Huh, there's a sitcom called mm, Friends. Yes, you know, and Seinfeld. And like, that's a whole thing in the 90s where we had these group of friends who were singles who would take care of each other and, you know, yada, yada, yada. And so, like, that was nice. And um, I think that is an important thing. I don't think she quite gets to the level of, of true understanding, which is that you can have your romantic relationship, but you should still keep your friends because no one person should be your everything. That's just that's just too much pressure for one person. So it's okay to have a variety of friends and relationships that fulfill different needs in your life. That's healthier instead of making this like my soulmate, my Mr. Right will do every single blasted thing for me. So she didn't quite get there. Unfortunately, again, like there's a lot of missed opportunities, but I did think that they showcased a, a group of friends well in both the book and the movie. So that's basically, those are my takeaways. Um, so reading this, I, I kind of go back and forth on feminism and chiclet. Chiclet, I, I don't like terms like Mary Sue. I don't like chiclet. I will use them on occasion when they really are applicable, but they tend to be overbroad. And how do you define them? Um, chiclet, you have a female protagonist, usually in some sort of publishing field, and romance may or may not ensue, but it's basically a journey about a woman. It almost always has romance. Almost, but... Yeah. <sighs> That's what I don't like about this term, is that it's it's overly broad, and you take out a number of actually really good books that deal with human struggles. So, um... See, I think that when you talk about chiclet, it's light. light and fluffy. It's light and fluffy. Yes, there's a woman. Yes, she's her protagonist. Nothing is too serious. Nothing is... is Nobody even has to learn, grow, and change. It's it's a, a delightful romp, as it says on a bunch of books. A delightful romp, a delightful this, you know. Blah, blah, blah. It's it's a it's well. I don't want to get into too many nothing. other books that we might preview at some point. But the Devil Wears Prada, there's a character arc. Uh, Inner shoes. You're dealing with sisters who have to deal with betrayal, and how do you deal with those kind of family relationships? And their mother had mental illness. Okay. 
Yeah. So that's what I mean is you could have novels that aren't just light and fluffy. They don't have to have shoes on the cover or dresses on the cover or, you know, some sort of objectification of a woman. Oh, looking like she's about to give a blowjob or she's having an orgasm or something. (gasps) Yeah, that's the the cover of this particular book is big, huge eyes and an open mouth. And yeah, it's a little tawdry. On the nose. (laughs) On the chin. Ha! (laughs) So Mary Sue is another term that gets flouted a lot. And it's usually female protagonists that always get it. Even though you have tons of male protagonists that would fit Mary Sue, they don't get the same level of criticism. So it feels like... And so it's a female protagonist that what? That tends to be too perfect. She's not perfect at all. Oh, no, but that's a Mary Sue. A Mary Sue is a character that's too perfect. Right, okay. So, yeah, not her. Not Bridget. No, I'm not talking about Bridget. I'm talking about terms that just get thrown around, um, specifically when they deal with women. And it tends to be, if it's for a female audience, it's derogatory. You know, for Mary Sue, if it's a female character, Mary Sues are applied to women a lot more than to men. Even though you have two characters who have the exact same background, one's male, one's female, one gets criticism, one doesn't. You know, back to sci-fi, if you want to go to that, Luke, George Lucas has a character insert named Luke who has the force and is amazing and can do all this shit. Or to bring it to a better sci-fi, we have... um Wesley Crusher, oh, who's named after Sheena Marys Wesley, and he is the perfect character who can do no wrong and knows everything, but is also super, super annoying. But there is a trope called the Wesley for the character that everybody hates, but there's that one creator that loves him. Yeah, because that he's the stand-in. Or Buffy the Vampire Slayer, or Xander, the character who is a total fuckwittage, but but was totally Joss Whedon in high school, so like you know that's yeah. why he's yeah okay sorry I get it yeah la la okay but okay but to bring it back to Bridget Jones, does Luke ever get killed for being a Mary Sue? But Ray does. Modern Ray, the female character, does even though she, she has die. no, but she I'm not saying killed. I mean nobody calls him on for being a Mary Sue, even though he's a total Mary Sue. Luke oh. Ray in the modern films, I don't think Luke is a Mary Sue. I think Luke is a whiny bitch. <laughs> okay, but also. Back to Bridget Jones. Do you, so sh- there's no Br- Mary Sue's here. So, okay. No, but what I'm talking about is when it's female, when it's oriented towards women, it tends to get a lot of shit that maybe it doesn't deserve. Um, Bridget Jones' diary, it kind of deserves the shit we're giving it today. I think we've proven that. But chick lit as a genre, I think is really dismissive of some rather good novels that are out there. Fair enough. So you can't judge a book by a genre placement. Yeah. I'm with you on that. But in this case, you can judge a book on its cover, art. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, and Chiclet can, can be a complete... It's kind of like all the genre names are, are not uh, descriptive enough. Because YA, and you can say I don't like YA, because typically YA has certain tropes that I don't like, but there are YA novels that I like. Horror, I don't like certain tropes that are you see often in horror, so I don't like horror books. Oh, wait, but I liked this book, and yes, that's technically horror. So genre labels are usable sometimes and not always in others, especially nowadays where we have a lot of cross-genre stuff, mm-hmm. and we don't have brick-and-mortar book shelves, so publishers are more willing to do cross-genre stuff because it's not where it's going to go in the stories and like a driving force on what we're going to publish this year versus not. Like They have different check marks and rubrics and quotas, etc., blah, blah, blah. 
In the case of this, this book is definitely chick lit because it is light and fluffy, geared towards women, about a woman. And then it is like the worst aspects of chick lit because she doesn't grow, she doesn't change, nothing happens. She uh, personifies and exemplifies a horrible stereotype of the woman that we are trying as society to go away from and to not be like. And it doesn't like, it's not satirical, it's not pointing to her and being like, don't be like this, because she's not punished or anything. She's basically rewarded for being her shallow, ditzy little self. And it's not a, a cautionary tale, again, because there's no comeuppance. And it's just, it's just there. It is glitter vomit on the page. <laughs> and then they made a adorkable romantic comedy movie based on it. And they fixed some of the things and they, they fleshed out other things to make it work better. So my takeaway is do not read this book unless it's a hate read with your friends and maybe maybe read it out loud as a hate read. Oh my god, we should totally do that with shots. But totally watch the movie. It's fine. It's fun. It's rompy. It's cute. It's blah, blah, blah. It's not going to make or change your life. But if you need a kind of silly romantic comedy because that's an itch that you need to scratch, go for it. The end. The reason I bring up Chicklet is because this is one of the novels that started that genre as being a genre. Ah. So it is important to talk about it. And those, those 90, you know, uh, shopaholic films. But I do like cross genre. You know, you could call The Handmaid's Tale, you know, feminist literature. So it's not Chicklet, but it's in that same realm of female protagonists. It's speculative go- fiction. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost feminist literature. Right, but I mean, I wouldn't put that in chiclet because it's speculative fiction that trumps chiclet. This is what I like about the changing world of publishing is we had this whole series of chiclet and you know, it became this big genre of pink covers and glitter and um, oh faces on the cover. And we're getting to an area where we're a lot smarter about how we do publishing and the books that come out and the books that appeal to people. Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that premise, but that feels like a supplemental topic about books because, yes. Okay, so was this book worth your time? God, no. Okay. Was I this liked movie- it when I was 20-something. Uh, movie, yes. Movie's cute. Movie's cute. Book, I, I guess, if you are lovely audience, have made it through this, and you're like, <laughs> that book actually sounds like my cup of tea, because <laughs> I'm British, and maybe 21, and still stuck in the 90s, then buy means please read this book otherwise we encourage you to not yeah okay pages and popcorn podcast was brought to you today by feminism (laughs) personal growth (laughs) and vodka in your tea and vodka in your tea (laughs) Hmm. that copy doesn't have the salmon rushdie quote no no but it's a thing there's a lot of... Well, we'll talk about it. No, tell me. What do you mean? Well, there's a Salman Rushdie quote. You know, they, I think it was remarkably funny. It was like a little two-line thing, and he appears in the movie. Oh. Oh. Well, okay. That That is pretty funny. I wonder which versions have that and which ones don't. Interesting. Yeah, for the different versions. Okay. Uh, a brilliant comedic creation. Even men will laugh. Finally, I found it. Even men will laugh. Yeah. Eyebrows are raised. You know who won't laugh is um, women nearing 40 who are reading it in 2019. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we'll have fun stuff to discuss. I think so.